Greetings and peace to you this night. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, how wonderful it is to be gathered together here in the Lord's house this night to once again celebrate in prayer and in praise the blessed assurance that our Lord and Savior has indeed passed from death into life. Jesus' resurrection, following his suffering, crucifixion, death, burial, and descent into hell, is a key element in the Christian faith. It's so important that it has been placed into our creeds, those essential, fundamental, I believe statements of Christian truth. We clearly and we publicly confess these credos in order to eliminate any ambiguity in what it is we believe. We did this just a short time ago when renewing our baptismal vows. John and Alexis, as they are confirmed this night and brought into the fellowship of our congregation and those who believe as we believe, join us in confessing this same faith, including our confidence in Jesus having risen from the dead. I must admit to you, though, that tonight it feels a little bit unusual to be preaching a sermon before the reading of the Gospel lesson. I guess most of us are very used to having the sermon preached immediately following the reading of all the lessons. You know what? That's still quite all right and for several reasons. For one thing, the gospel lesson from St. Mark that we will hear a little bit later on isn't going to be any less meaningful or any less truthful simply because it won't be followed by a sermon. For another reason, we all know that the proclamation of the gospel in our wonderful liturgies and hymns and prayers is never restricted to the gospel lesson alone and the sermon alone, is it? Rather, from invocation to benediction, from the first whisper of the prelude to the last echo of the final hymn, the living word of God hovers in the air, and it pierces through the hard shell of our apathy and our skepticism to shake the very foundations of who we are. Where God's word is, God is, drawing us to him, showing us his promises again and again, sharing his gifts with us, now and forever. And another reason it's okay that we haven't read the gospel quite yet is, well, it's kind of a selfish reason. I just happen to think that the reading from 1 Peter chapter 3 tonight is pretty cool. But I also have to admit, however, that it took a few times for me reading through it this week before I arrived at that conclusion. You see, even though I know full well that it is totally God's inspired and inerrant word and that there's lots of wonderful content in this reading, it seems that the Holy Spirit kind of had Peter bouncing off the walls a bit, jumping from one thought to another and from topic to topic. But the more you read this passage, the more you begin to see the elegance and the harmony and, yes, the perfection that is God's word. Far from being random snippets that Peter jotted down as they popped into his head one after the other, there's a beauty and a flow to this text that becomes clearer and clearer the more that we contemplate it. Initially, 
We hear Peter providing encouragement and support to Christian believers as they face worldly trials and difficulties, including in this particular case, persecution for proclaiming the truth about Christ. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil, Peter writes. Suffering that is the will of God? Being on the receiving end of trouble, even when you're doing good? That hardly seems fair and just, does it? It isn't something that we would find desirable or attractive. Yet that is the experience of the Christian in this world, is it not? Now, we are fortunate to live in a society which still largely allows us to practice our Christian faith. The only real good that we can do, if you stop and think about it. For the most part, this does happen without much interference. Now, our nation might not be quite as hospitable to the free exercise of religion as it once was, but we certainly don't face the strength of opposition and even the severe persecution that Christians in other times and places even in our own age, sometimes experience. But Peter goes on to help us focus our attention on suffering of a far more significant sort, the suffering of Christ himself. Not the just suffering that might come our way as a consequence of being evil and doing evil in our lives, and not the somewhat unjust suffering that we may experience as the victims of either intentional or even random evil in the world around us, evil directed upon us by the devil, sometimes even when we're doing God's will. No, Peter instead says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. His suffering was not a deserved consequence of his own actions, nor was it a random victimization. Jesus' suffering was intentional, purposeful suffering, a substitution of him for you. And to what purpose? That he might bring us to God, Peter writes. Not a pointless suffering, not a suffering intended to draw attention and pity upon himself, It's not even a suffering intended to make others feel guilty about having caused it. Although, this contrition and the repentance that it brings is essential to our being drawn back to God by the Holy Spirit. In the final analysis, the suffering and death of Jesus in that mortal flesh that the immortal Son took upon himself is what restored you to a clean slate with God. Your criminal record is wiped off the books, your soul pardoned by his execution. But Peter doesn't leave Jesus in the tomb because God didn't leave Jesus there. The work of redemption was completed, the work of salvation still to do. Jesus was truly dead in the flesh, having suffered an unjust death for unrighteous sinners like you and me. Jesus had paid for your sins so that you didn't have to. God took the punishment which you deserved and heaped it upon his Son. That alone was an infinitely loving and merciful act. You were back on even level ground with God. What a relief to not have to suffer the eternal punishment for all of the wrongs that you've accumulated in your life. That wasn't enough for God, though. 
He wants more of you. He doesn't just want you to be forgiven. He wants you to be his. He wants you to be with him forever. And so, Jesus was brought back to life, made alive in the Spirit. That's a hugely important event. Anytime a dead person becomes alive again, it goes totally against humanity's understanding of mortality. Now, it may appear that Peter shortchanges this event somewhat by going off on a tangent, first bringing up Jesus' proclamation to disobedient, imprisoned spirits, and then injecting a discussion of God's patience and his acts of preservation in the days of Noah. But these are not random, idle thoughts at all. Jesus, having gone to the spirits in prison, was nothing less than his declaration in the spirit world what he had already spoken in the physical world. It is finished. It's over, Satan. You have not won. You have no hold on me in death, for I am no longer dead, but alive. What's more, you have no claim upon those whom I bestow faith to in order to believe in my death and my resurrection, for I have paid their ransom. I release them not only from their slavery to sin, but also their bondage to death. This is Jesus' victory tour. It ought to lift our hearts and make those words he descended into hell not a timid, fearful, and whispered phrase, but a bold and joyous declaration that we are free and we are the Lord's. The gates of hell which will not prevail against Christ's church have already been knocked aside and shattered for us. Likewise, the mention of Noah is not mere happenstance, a nice way for Peter to connect these early Christians with their Jewish roots. Rather, he points out that Noah and his family were, just like us, intentionally chosen by the Lord to receive his deliverance. At the command of God, water cleansed God's creation of unrepentant evil and rescued the trusting from death. As we heard earlier tonight in the blessing of the font, Peter informs us that the flood was a type of baptism, a miraculous physical action that foreshowed, foreshadowed rather the greater spiritual action yet to come. Baptism, as Pastor Knuckles reminded us yesterday and Peter describes here, is not a removal of our mere outward grime, but rather a cleansing of our inner selves. We often describe it as a drowning of our sinful nature, the old Adam, as the Catechism describes it. But don't stop there. Baptism is a means Christ has given us to be connected to him in death and in life, dying to sin and arising anew. Buried with him in death, of course, as Paul described in our Romans 6 reading earlier, but also raising us up, floating us above that settling sludge of our sins, sustaining us on the pure waters of God's word. Cleansed by Christ's appeal to God for us, for our good conscience, we wait our own resurrections on the clouds of heaven. Upon them, our Lord and Savior will one day return from his throne of power, seated at the right hand of God. The resurrection of our Lord 
is proof that our loving Heavenly Father has accepted the sacrifice His Son made for the atonement of the sins of the whole world, yours and mine included. What a joy to know that we need not worry whether we've done enough to be saved or even whether Jesus had done enough to to save us. No, the resurrection of Jesus provides us with complete confidence that he did everything, all that was necessary to redeem our bodies and our souls, that he might bring us to God. Welcome back, dear Jesus, victorious living Savior. Welcome home, dear Christian, precious child of God. Amen.